0: Sarah, Hey, Chris. How you doing?
1: I am fine. How are That's you? That's
0: least convincing fine I've heard.
1: Oh, I'm fine. It's COVID-19 <laughs> pandemic time. We're trying to decide how many people will perish when we all force ourselves back into the classroom and bring the students back and what's an acceptable loss. Typical ennui of 21st century humans. How are you?
0: I'm in much the same boat. You know, the impending doom of fall semester and how in the world we're going to teach anything and students are going to learn anything <laughs> fall.
1: We're in our COVID-19 pandemic feels. It doesn't roll off the tongue like just being in your feels, but you know?
0: It is. But it might be a good time then to re-listen to a couple of things from someone we're bringing up today, Augustine Fuentes.
1: We asked some of our... Former guests who have books that we've, you know, we've referenced as we've interviewed them to do a little self-promotion. Yeah. Um, We have this platform we can offer them to, uh, you know, because I read, I listen to a lot of the books uh, that I digest. And it occurred to me that uh, after, after listening to Ezra Klein's podcast, and I said this in the last episode where he read his book that, hey, we got all these anthropologists who stand in front of students all day long. They should have a pretty polished reading voice, right? Right. Right.
0: Not awkward at all. (laughs)
1: Not awkward at all. So Augustine Fuentes was on our show. Who's Augustine Fuentes?
0: Augustine Fuentes was chair of the anthropology department at the University of Notre Dame, but he has now moved on to Princeton University. And he was on our show... August, I believe, or September of 2019, during one of our academic episodes where he talked about coming back from the field and kind of the mental and physical toll fieldwork can take on somebody and then the trouble of reintegrating post-fieldwork.
1: Wow, so there was a lot of words there. I'm still hung up on we had August and August and then also <laughs> that he is he's gone to Princeton. He's no longer your chair. Holy cannoli.
0: It's very sad. Very sad that we only got, technically I feel like I only got to work with him for like six months before everything shut down and i didn't see anybody again
1: yeah that's a bummer well the his return from the field episode was f- fantastic. I use it a lot this year's going to be really weird because nobody went to the field, so we're going to have a whole sort of different town hall but but, but it, it might be
0: still useful of just kind of returning to society. Post lockdown, I think there will be a lot of things that I can transfer over
1: well you make a good point and and I had a town hall sort of meeting um, with my all the grad students in my department right after we had the interview with him, and they loved it. It was super appreciated. And they literally said to me, like, we thought this was going to be a really dumb idea where we had to sit around and talk about our feelings, but thank you for doing it. This was really helpful, and I'm glad that we did it. So, sounds a lot like parenting for me. I tell my kids, years later, are always like, yeah, you're right. So (laughs) Anyway, this is not what this book is about, though, right?
0: It's not. So that's one of the really, I guess, sad things for for you and I, Chris, is that we got Augustine on to do this amazing interview about coming back from the field. But he's also incredibly prolific when it comes to writing. And as we were discussing his books and, you know, getting these audio files from people reading segments of their books, we couldn't figure out at first which book it was from, because he's written so many, uh, and so we had to, to listen through what he had to say, and uh, we'll be listening to Augustine read from his new book that came out in September 2019, Why We Believe, uh, Evolution and the Human Way, Way of Being.
1: This is from the Foundational Questions in Science series,
0: which I did or... not know the series.
1: Wow, this reminds me a lot of another guest of ours, Barbara King, who wrote a book called Evolving God, and the first review is by Barbara King, so there you go.
0: (laughs) Because she reads constantly. Anyone who's friends with her on Facebook, like once a week, there's a giant stack of books that she, she posts and says, this is my reading list for the week, and I'm just like, I would kill to be able to read that much in a week. Anyway, well, we should get back to Augustine.
1: We should. And I have a guilty little secret. It's not really guilty and it's not really a secret, but, but he's my role model for academic writing and being prolific and I'm nowhere near it. But I really love the way he synthesizes work. I really love the accessibility and the outward facing nature of his work in general and how much he puts out for a general audience, the nature of the science that he does. And um, so this excerpt should give you a little insight in his own voice.
0: Yeah, we hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for listening. My name is Augustine Fuentes
2: and I'm gonna read to you a selection uh, from the start of chapter one in my book, Why We Believe, Evolution and the Human Way of Being. Chapter one is entitled, Belief, Evolution, and Our Place in the World. Here are three facts about who we are biologically. Number one, humans represent an infinitesimally small percentage of all life on this planet. Number two, humans are deeply and substantially linked to all other life. And number three, despite being a teeny part of the great diversity of living things, humans are amongst the most significant forces affecting all other life. How we became so significant is one of the most important questions facing humanity. Our capacity for belief is a major part of the answer. First, a little context. Scientists have cataloged more than 2 million species of life, and they estimate that this is only about 25% of the species out there. Most living things are really quite small. While life is... edit... While life is amazingly diverse, not all lineages are equally represented in the panoply of organisms. For example, of the 400,000 or so species of beetles, uh, they represent about close to 20% of all named species. When the renowned evolutionary biologist JBS Haldane was asked by a group of theologians what one could conclude about the nature of the creator from a study of his creation, he is said to have answered, he had inordinate fondness for beetles. The theological significance of beetles notwithstanding we can unequivocally state that humans are not very prominent in the overall picture of the diversity of life at least on the face of things among the lineages of all living organisms we don't really stand out we're one of the many many lines of backbone organisms a thing called cordata lumped in with the monkeys dogs platypuses iguanas salmon and chickens nevertheless despite our Anonymity in the panoply of life, we can learn from our lineage quite a bit about who we are and how our ancestry lays a baseline for our capacity to believe. The first time I looked at a cell through the microscope, I was amazed. I remember thinking, this is what we're made of. Each of these contains the secret of who we are buried deep in the nucleus. is the DNA, the blueprint for life. But my thought was far too simplistic. Like most people, I had a fantastical view of DNA, thinking it contains the code for who we are or the instructions for making an organism. The truth is, it has neither of these things. DNA is part of an amazing, intricate system of interrelated proteins, enzymes, and other molecules and chemical relationships that interact to enable core aspects of the development of organisms and their patterns of life. DNA cannot do anything alone, and it does not contain either the secret of life or a blueprint. It does, however, offer us a great deal of information about life and its relationships. As one of the oldest shared elements of most life on Earth, DNA acts as a partial record of our ancestries and our ties to one another. It contains patterns that are passed from generation to generation, recording in their alterations and preservations the histories of fusions and visions that have characterized life from its first humble appearance as much as four billion years ago. By comparing different organisms' DNA sequences, we can reconstruct minute details of their lineages on the great map of life. In short, the structure of DNA and the way this structure is passed from generation to generation enable us to use it, alongside the fossil record, to map, to create a map of the relationships and histories of all living things. Looking at humans as part of the cluster of backbone animals we see that we share something like 98% of our DNA with chimpanzees, slightly less with monkeys, about 80% with dogs and 60% with chickens. It turns out that the first part of the answer to who we are is that biologically, humans are squarely in the midst of the mammals we call primates. Even a superficial look at all the primates, including us, reveals the family resemblance. But what then does being a primate have to do with the capacity for belief? Humans as primates. If you stand in the middle of a large group of macaque monkeys early in the morning, the first thing you notice is the activity feeding, grooming, playing, fighting, resting against one another, exploring, and watching each other. To your left, you might see a matrifocal cluster an older female, her sister, her daughter, her daughter's daughter, and their one or two year old offspring playing around them, leaning into them, grabbing bits of food from their hands. The three generations of adult females groom one another, running their hands through each other's fur calmly sharing the physical space and creating a social bridge across generations. A few meters away, an old male watches the cluster groom and keeps his eye on two young adult males who have newly begun to challenge him in their quest for social position. He sighs, rises and saunters over to the females lying down in front of them to signal invitation. The oldest turns away from her daughter and begins to groom the old male. This activity, the primate way of being in the world, is social through and through. The deep roots of primate sociality are a key source of the human capacity to believe. As animal behaviors go, primate sociality is particularly complex and different from other forms of gregariousness. Several bird species flock together, wildebeest congregate in herds and travel for hundreds of miles, fish of all sorts school, swimming and feeding as if they were a single composite organism, but primate groups distinctively feature collections of individuals with a range of personalities, competing interests, and shared histories of cooperation, conflict, trust, and manipulation. To be social as a primate requires a particular intensity of dynamic relationships. The infrastructure of primate sociality sets the stage for the cognitive and social resources necessary for belief capacities to emerge. Now, some species of mammals and a few birds have independently evolved complex social lives similar to primates. We see these patterns in whales and dolphins and wolves and dogs, and also in the viverrids, especially the meerkats and their cousins, the hyenas. But in primates, especially in monkeys and apes, sociality is more than the sum of its parts. The combination of a very extended and intense mother infant bond, long lifespans, substantial cognitive capacities, and the emergence of a strong and diverse personalities, with an anatomy that includes agile grasping hands, an upper body that frees the arms and hands when sitting down, color vision, and a lack of specialized morphology for combat, such as claws or spikes, facilitates the emergence of primate sociality. The primate's assemblage of physical traits and cognitive and social capacities gives rise to certain possibilities for seeing the world, for complex behavior, for an intense inquisitiveness and an ability to manipulate objects and other group members in fascinating whales. The world would undoubtedly be different if orcas, what we call killer whales, had thumbs and legs for terrestrial movement, but they don't. We do. The capacities inherent in primate bodies and minds enable a diverse range of relationships between individuals. Bonds among genetic kin are expected, but friendships between those not genetically related also play a central role in many primates' lives. Alliances and coalitions, short and long-lived, social manipulations, deceit, and changing relations between individuals as their social landscape shift are all part of primate sociality. For primates, the social landscape is the stage for existence, and in evolutionary terms, each primate is shaped and also shapes its social ecology. In making these assertions, I'm drawing on more than 60 years of intensive research on multiple primate species. For apes, such as the chimpanzees, gorillas, orangutans, and gibbons, and for monkeys, especially baboons, macaques, capuchin monkeys, muriki monkeys, and vervet monkeys, we have multiple generations of data from many sites around the world. Over decades of work, thousands of researchers have given us thousands upon thousands of hours of observation of primates both in captivity and in the wild as well as intensive investigations into their behavior, physiology, genetics, and morphology. And we are primates. We belong to a lineage for whom social interactions, social landscapes, and social connections with our kin, friends, and even enemies are central to our lives and an integral part of our evolutionary story. More than almost any other animals, primates have a wide-ranging capacity to respond to challenges with behavioral innovation. To be specific, the human capacity for cooperation, collaboration and deep social reliance on and commitment to others, the critical social and cognitive resources underlying our capacity for belief are rooted in our histories as primates. This is not a novel idea. Darwin hinted at it, and many contemporary primate research have done important work demonstrating that this is indeed the case. Yet, there is more to learn from the primates. In addition to the capacity for complex social lives, heightened social cognition and behavioral flexibility, there's also another piece that offers additional insight into the evolutionary infrastructure of our capacity to believe. That additional piece is primate's ability to have an aesthetic sense and the experience of awe, critically necessary for the development of transcendent, transcendent experience that we find in humans. A few years ago, I collaborated with some colleagues at National Geographic, the group that designs and implements Crittercams cameras attached to various animals to allow us humans to see what the world looks like from the animal's point of view. We placed cameras on two species of macaque monkeys, one in Singapore and one in Gibraltar. The camera attached to the neck and sat just below below the chin on a swivel, such that whether the individual was sitting or walking, we got more or less the orientation and image that represented the animal's point of view. These glimpses into the daily lives of the primates are amazing, at least for primatologists. We saw feeding, grooming, fighting, playing, and the monkey's entire social world acted out in front of us from their perspective. But there was something else too. Only a few instances. Not enough to develop any real scientific analysis, but something. In Singapore, a male wearing the camera climbed down from his tree and approached a large six-lane highway dividing him from a forest patch and an enormous fruiting fig tree. He leaped onto the pedestrian overpass and climbed onto its roof, where he began to jaunt across the bridge, presumably headed to the fig tree. But halfway across the bridge, the monkey stopped. Now remember, we are reviewing this footage on a monitor after recovering the camera and are seeing not the monkey himself, but his point of view. He spends a few minutes moving toward the fig tree and then turns toward the edge of the walkway roof, overhanging the six lanes of speeding traffic. He approaches the edge and stops, looking over. We see the image of speeding cars rushing past in both directions. Then he sits up and the frame is filled like a painting with borders of forest, a center of highways and speeding traffic and the high rise flats in the background. It's a stunning view. He sits motionless, watching this panorama for several minutes. Then the image shifts and the fig tree flies back into view and gets closer and closer. In Gibraltar, a female macaque named Sylvia wore the camera for us. She provided a dynamic, exciting day of footage. Sylvia's hands as they groom her young son, her spats with the male and female, her hands foraging for flowers and grasses along the peninsula's steep cliff faces. But in the late afternoon, she stops. She sits high up on the western face of the rock of Gibraltar, overlooking the strait from which we can just make out the outline of Jeb el Musa, Gibraltar's twin mountain on the north coast of Morocco. We, the three researchers, are mesmerized by the beautiful saying, But Sylvia's not done. She shifts her body and head slightly, and we gasp. The new scene she has framed is even more breathtaking. The light shimmers off the meeting of the Mediterranean, the Atlantic. North Africa rises magnificently on the horizon, and the edges of the rock frame the left side of the image. Sylvia sits for many minutes, taking in the scene before moving on. These are anecdotes, but they're hard to forget. And there are others. Many of my colleagues who have spent months and years watching primates report moments when a primate seems to be enraptured by a scene, possibly enjoying a purely aesthetic experience. We know enough about primate visual systems and neurological processing to know that we and they are seeing more or less the same thing. Could it be that some aspect of visual experience that resonates across species? Might the emotion of awe be older than humanity? I wish I had an answer, but I don't. All the same, this idea suggests an interesting possibility about the primate perceptual and experiential baseline that humans expanded upon, especially when we consider the anthropologist Mel Connors' suggestion that the sense of wonder is the hallmark of our species and the central feature of the human spirit. This is chapter six, How Culture Works, from my book, Why We Believe, Evolution and the human way of being, how culture works. Psychologist Michael Tomasella once said, fish are born expecting water and humans are born expecting culture. Over countless eons, fish have evolved in an environment in which water was central to every aspect of their being and they develop accordingly. A fish's body, its behavior, and its perception of the world are wholly inseparable from its existence in water. Over the last two million years, human development has evolved as a system that is inseparable from the linguistic, socially mediated, and constructed structures, institutions, and beliefs that make up the human niche. This cultural human niche enables us to benefit from massive accumulation of information by countless individuals, groups, and populations, to be innovative in ways that no individual could be on one's own, and to learn and teach and socialize in ways unavailable to other organisms. A distinctively human culture is part of our nature. Humans are not hardwired with any specific culture. We are wired to co-acquire and develop such structures across our lifespan. <clears throat> Rather than think of a human acquiring culture or developing a body, we can think of those aspects of the human as mutually entwined processes of becoming. And unfold from the uterus to the grave. Three key aspects of these processes are the acquisition of skills, neuroendocrine development, and the capacity to create specific mental representations. These combine to give humans the capacity to think offline and experience a true imaginary, critical processes for belief. Tim Ingold describes the development and refining of skills, which he terms enskillment, as, and I quote, the embodiment of capacities of awarenesses and response by environmentally situated agents. In short, the human niche is what humans grow into, with, and against simultaneously. Enskillment is a physical, cognitive, social, and potentially transcendent process. As we navigate our social ecological landscapes, Our bodies and minds acquire particular motor and social skills. All of this occurs in a particular cultural context. We embody the specifics of language, particular modes of movement and behavior, appropriate mannerisms, and the use of, and interface with, clothing, food, and patterns of socializing, rules, laws, and customs. We are also immersed in the details of the beliefs of our home community, and if we travel, of the places and peoples we encounter. Throughout our lives, our minds and bodies are shaped by all of these experiences. This honing of particular modes of perception and action creates the skills that humans acquire, use, and alter across their lifetimes. These skills include the use and manipulation of language, our mode of walking, the capacity to predict slight change in the weather, the ability to read subtle social cues in the faces and bodies, a gut sense of right and wrong, and the facility to deeply feel, physically and emotionally, a religious commitment or political stance. These skills and others are not external features mapped onto the biological base of our bodies. They are materially real parts of us embodied in our neurobiology. Anthropologists Greg Downey and Daniel Lendy, who offer an eloquent and accessible summary of these processes, point out that our neurobiology is always developing as we navigate the human niche and the dynamics of human culture. The skills we acquire are at once material, perceptual, and experiential. In their book, The Encultured Brain An Introduction to Neuroanthropology, Downley and Lendy state, and I quote Neuroanthropology makes experience material. Neural systems adapt through long term refinement and remodeling, which leads to learning, memory, maturation, even trauma. Through systematic change in the nervous system, the body learns to orchestrate itself as well as it eventually does. Culture, concepts, meanings become anatomy rather than one set of genes or an overarching system of meaning, humans capacity for abstract thought emerges equally from social and individual sources, built of public symbol, evolutionary endowment, social scaffolding and private neurological achievements. Our experiences, memories and thoughts are biochemically embedded in our brains and bodies in a process that reshapes itself across our entire lives. Our development in the human niche is literally co-constitutive with our neural and endocrine systems. This combination, the neuroendocrine system, is the amalgam of bodily systems responsible in us, as in all organisms, for maintaining homeostasis. That is, regulating reproduction, metabolism, sleeping, eating, drinking, energy utilization, and blood pressure. In many socially complex organisms, these neuroendocrine systems are often called psychoneuroendocrine because they are well understood to be in constant mutual interface with the social behavior, in social communities, and in humans with the experience of cultural institutions and processes. Our bodies are literally cultural organisms. Cultural experiences are integrated into our skin, our muscles, our nerve fibers, our neurons, and our entire physiological systems. And this process is central to the development, makeup, and function of our brain. One obvious way this plays out is how different people from different cultures interpret tastes of different foods, perceive hot and cold temperatures, even on which aspects of a painting or landscape their eyes first focus. Take two identical twins, separated at birth and raised apart, one in Northern Alaska and the other near the equator in Brazil. As adults, if you put them together and had them stand in a room at 60 degrees Fahrenheit in shorts and a t-shirt, one would be freezing and the other warm. If you give them raw salmon to eat, the smell and taste would stimulate very different visceral reactions from each. When you ask ask each to describe the same painting, they would likely point out different features in it as drawing their interest. The temperature, the salmon, and the painting are all constant. The experienced physical and perceptual reactions of each of the twins differed despite having the identical DNA and very similar patterns of taste buds, muscles, nerve bundles, body hair, and rods and cones in their eyes. Each sees, tastes, and feels the stimuli differently because each has developed, become and skilled in different cultural and ecological contexts. And this is not just for external physical sensations and interactions. It is in our cognitive processes as well. The brain itself is a hyperdynamic organ interconnected with all sensory and bodily apparatuses, shapes and is shaped by these relationships. We saw in chapter three that the expansion in our brains neurobiological complexity was a central facet of our lineage's evolution and that it opened up possibilities for learning and innovation unavailable to other organisms. The human brain is only about 40% of its adult size at birth, the lowest known ratio among mammals, and it undergoes reorganization throughout much of our lives. That the majority of brain growth happens out in the world rather than in the womb makes the interplay between the constituents of the human niche and the development of the human body all the more critical. The brain and all its networks develop, lay down connections, and alter pathways and flows of biochemical signals in constant exchange with our bodies, our senses, the social and physical landscapes we inhabit, and our own thoughts, perceptions, and experiences of all these things. This is the embodiment of culture. Recent cognitive science argues that our cognition is simultaneously enacted in our lives, extended beyond our brain, embedded in the social fabric in which we exist and are embodied physically part of us through the psychoneuroendocrine system. Downey and Lendy are speaking literally when they say that, quote, cultural concepts and meanings become anatomy, end quote. As we develop in our niche of human culture, our experiences and perceptions shape and are shaped by our neuroendocrine systems, developing an anatomy and physiology that are part of the niche's cultural dynamic. That anatomy and physiology interact with the world to construct the very niche that shaped it. It is by this process that humans develop skills throughout their lives. It is not only physically that we interact with the world. One reason the human niche's particular dynamic is our capacity to be cognitively unrestrained by our immediate material context. Like the fish swimming and becoming in water, humans are immersed in and constitutive of a semiotic ecosystem that includes substantial symbolic components and a continuous potential for the imaginary and the transcendent. Thus, unlike that of the fish, the human niche is shaped and bounded by things that are not always material or physiologically perceptible. Humans can see the world around them, imagine how it might be different, and translate those imagin- imaginings into reality, or at least try to. The human experience and thus our skill set, our perceptual reality, is not limited to the tangible or the material. It is clear that complex and occasionally immaterial mental representations are a central process in human culture, and that the system underlying these capacities is especially salient in the contemporary functioning of the human niche. It is the dynamic combination of our psychoneuroendocrine processes, our capacities for and patterns of enskillment, and the complexities of the human cultural system that enable us to develop and deploy particularly complex mental imagery. This process gives us the mechanism to believe.
0: There we go. So apparently we're recording. We're going to see. We
1: are recording. Ah! From your Zoom in?
0: In South Bend, Indiana, technically Notre Dame, Indiana.
1: So wait, Notre Dame incorporated its own city within South Bend?
0: So I don't really know how it works except that my shipping address is Notre Dame, Indiana, not South Bend, Indiana. So Chris, welcome back from summer, and welcome back to the Sausage of Science.
1: Thanks, it's great to be here, Kara. How was your summer?
0: Um, it was an incredibly chaotic summer, uh, moving, there were some family issues and various research things and writing things that all kind of caved in together at once but i'm on the other side of it now right on yeah how about you
1: my summer was also chaotic i did not move but i did uh, spend a week in dc for a triple as public engagement fellowship which was super cool and awesome and
0: what's the name of that fellowship again
1: It is the Leshner Fellowship that a previous guest of ours, Julie Lesnick, was also a fellow of and turned me on to and helped me out with. So thank you, Julie, and thank you, AAAS, for an awesome week. They were teaching us how to do, ironically, the kind of stuff that we're doing right here, but to do it better and to get a better distribution. They love the Sausage of Science podcast, I will say. They think it's a great name. They really dug that. They were excited to hear that when they did our on-camera interviews. We got to go to Congress and talk to bigwigs and meet with staffers. I'm sorry? Did you
0: yell at Congress?
1: No, no, no. Because the staffers who were willing to meet with us were already sympathetic to science. But I will say, I will say while we were there, we found out there are two bipartisan supported bills on the floor, one to increase diversity in the sciences and one to address Sexual harassment and gender issues in the sciences. I forget now. It's been a month and a week and a day. Who the original sponsor of the bill was, but like I said, bipartisan support is a really good, really good potential for for that making it through. So that was that was really promising and cool. And I, I just want to, you know, give a shout out for the folks listening because this fellowship is an annual thing and the support they give, even though it's a one-year fellowship, is for the rest of your life. So huh. the folks in the public engagement program there are amazing and awesome and just know a ton of stuff and a ton of people and have been totally hooking me up.
0: Oh, that's
1: great. The next one is the subject or the topic that uh, they base each year around varies. So my year was human augmentation. So I applied because my tattooing research is is a form of human augmentation. And the next year is artificial intelligence.
0: Oh, interesting. Really cool.
1: And you only have to loosely make the argument because (laughs) they're very generous in accepting they really want diverse fellows from a lot of different disciplines, and they love anthropology and want more anthropologists.
0: No, that's great. Um, I'm trying to find, as it was on my calendar, when the application is actually due.
1: Yeah, it's this fall sometime. I can't remember off the top of my head either. But yeah, it's we'll
0: have to put that um, in the show notes.
1: Yeah, we should do that.
0: But I think you bring up something that's actually going to segue quite nicely into something we're doing on the Sausage of Science that's kind of new.
1: What's that, Kara? Uh,
0: So it's something that we are, at least at this point, calling Hackademics. And it's going to be a series of podcasts that we'll release in our regular rotation, but maybe every other one, uh, that talk about different skills and different issues that we both need and face in academia, and hopefully give you some helpful advice uh, for managing some of these trickier things. So for example, Uh, you brought up sexual harassment. Uh, We're going to hopefully have Kate Clancy on the show to talk about basically hostile environments and what you can do uh, to help combat that, but also what to do if you find yourself in one of those situations. Who can you go to, who can you talk to? We're also gonna talk about things like alternative teaching methods, imposter syndrome, uh, demystifying the publication process. And today, which I think is gonna be a very timely interview since we are just back into the semester, and a lot of people have come back from doing field work. Uh, We're gonna be talking to Augustine Fuentes about coming back from the field. And though that sounds like, well, yeah, you came back from the field, there's a lot of stuff that happens to people uh, when they spend an extended period of time in the field. And there's this sort of like reverse culture shock coming back home. And you can deal with a lot of mental and emotional issues when you're trying to readjust to life back home. And also, if especially for, for folks coming back from dissertation field work, that mountain of data analysis and writing up that is about to have to happen. And a lot of people struggle with it, but nobody talks about it. And it's a, a very little recognized problem that a lot of us face.
1: But Kara, I talk to you about it all the time, because I came back from the field, and coming back from the field kicked my ass way more than being in the field, and it's taken me three weeks to readjust.
0: And so, let's get a perspective on that. How long were you in the field this time?
1: For almost a month. About as long, I was about in the field about as long as it took me to recover from being in the field.
0: But that's the thing. I mean, and it's different for everybody, and so... You know, part of me, I wanted to share my own story from my dissertation fieldwork uh, and coming back to kind of set this up. And I know Augustine has a story as well that he's going to tell. Uh, But I spent seven months in the Rocky Mountains for my fieldwork. And, you know, the Rocky Mountains is the United States. So this wasn't super remote, removed sort of of fieldwork. Wait,
1: the Rocky Mountains are in the United States?
0: What? What? (laughs) Um, Anyway.
1: Oh, that's not uh, the punchline.
0: Go ahead. punchline. Uh, But the punchline was I wasn't technically all that far from home, but I was away from home for seven months and I was away from my friends and my partner and my pets and all of that. Uh, And it was isolating to some degree. And I remember coming back from the field and I was paralyzed, absolutely paralyzed. I could not do work. There was just nothing I could do to make me actually start even looking at my data. I would open up these files. um, It was the heart rate monitor data more than anything that paralyzed me, knowing that there were literally millions and millions of data points that I had to go through. I would open up a file, stare at it for like 20 minutes doing nothing, and then just walk away. And then it might be another four days before I was able to even open another file again. And I think it took me something like three months, three months to even start to to clean up that data and to organize that data. And I thought there was something like wrong with me and only me, that like, there was some reason that I alone must be experiencing this and nobody else experiences this. And so the isolation I felt in the field like carried over.
1: I complained all summer, all August, about coming yeah. back from Samoa, but did I ever tell you about m- my coming back from the field dissertation story? Because it's- No in some ways similar, and I'll I'll be brief, because basically my field site was my backyard. I lived in the same town, but I had gotten my job, ABD, and literally started my job a week after I defended, which was literally a week after, like I did everything at the same time. So kids don't do this at home, and that sounds very condescending, but I'm 48 this year, so kids don't do that at home. I did my data collection, my writing, and applying for jobs all at the same time because I had three toddlers at home. Again, don't do this at home. But I got the job started here. And like you, I had a large pile of data. And I was so freaked out and depressed and had imposter syndrome coming out the wazoo. And what should have been a glorious start to my new life was utterly utterly depressing and stressful and that whole first year of my job here i just was struggling big time i hated my data
0: so let me ask you this did you talk to anybody about it (laughs) exactly no because neither did i because i totally thought my advisor would be like get over it you're like this is a sign of weakness and you just need to do it because it's not something that we ever talk about And it's not something that people are are warned about before even going into the field, that this is something that they may experience when they get back.
1: I talked to Sharon DeWitt, who we've had on the pod previously, because she's a friend of mine. I TA'd for her. I talked to Walt Little, who was on my committee, maybe a few other people. Three years later, Mm -hmm. I was in mid-tenure and still freaking out about getting pubs out and just having a nervous breakdown. Went on Lexapro, anti anxiety, antidepressants, you know, all that stuff.
0: And honestly, you and I had, let's we can put it in air quotes, fairly cushy field sites. Yeah. And I
1: mean you worked in Pentecostal churches. Yeah, no (laughs) no threats there.
0: Think about people who work with immigrant communities. Oh I know. Vulnerable communities, and they probably see horribly traumatic shit. But they're dealing with processing those experiences.
1: Sure. Well, that's why, you know, a few years ago we put together a session for AAA on sort of some of these kinds of things. And Rebecca Lester at WashU is a psychological anthropologist and a psychoanalyst who works on reflected trauma. And, you know, my wife is a therapist. They get supervision hmm. therapy. So they don't internalize that stuff and so they can deal with it. And, Rebecca from what I understand does something similar with her students she works helps them work through that reflected trauma so it doesn't traumatize them mm-hmm. and I always thought that was brilliant
0: yeah that's fantastic know. and we're hoping to get Rebecca Lester on the show for another episode of the Academic series aren't we
1: that's funny that's that's why I mentioned her name <laughs> <gasps>
0: tying, yes. it in, tying it in yes. But I think, uh, we'll make that conversation a, a broad one about mental health in general especially with grad school yeah um, and then we can even move it into junior faculty and then you know the associate professor kind of like sinkhole but anyway so welcome to the sausage of science augustine <laughs> finally <laughs> finally uh, And so as i told you and we've actually just been telling all of our listeners we're starting this new series called hackademics uh, where we talk about different issues that people in academia face and also different skills that people might want to develop and that our first one is going to revolve around coming back from the field. Uh, and so Chris and I kind of intro this episode sharing our individual coming back from the field stories. And I know you have a really interesting <laughs> one <laughs> that I only just heard for the first time the other day that I would hope you would share with everybody.
2: Sure, yeah, I mean, and this is uh, to be clear, there are a lot of issues coming back from the field. This is specifically about coming back from long-term dissertation research, right? So. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think there's a particular reality associated with that. There's also issues from all other kinds of coming back from the field. But this one, you know, the big dissertation, going out and coming back is, is a big one. So basically, mm-hmm. in a nutshell, you know, I did my dissertation in Indonesia, sort of left the U.S., left UC Berkeley, uh, went out, spent a long time, long time, uh, many, many months uh in Indonesia, my work was in the Mentawi Islands, so it's a small, extremely remote islands off the west coast of Sumatra, sort of the edge of the planet, nothing between them and the coast of Africa except for the Indian Ocean. Uh, really, really impressive area, but difficult. So during my uh, dissertation experience, I mean, it was really a life-changing experience in retrospect, really good, but a lot of stuff went down and you know, some of it was fairly traumatic. And you know, during my time there, as happens to a lot of people, stuff happens to relationships, stuff happens to sort of life and your perspective and your experiences, and all of that happened to me. So I'm flying back on Garuda Airline. That's it, I'm done, I'm coming back from the field, uh, there was actually some issues that made me come back a little early, like logging and giant truck accidents and ships sinking. So it was a little, little crazy. But um, so I'm coming back. In those days, the Garuda Airlines flight, which used to, doesn't fly to the U.S. anymore, but used to, stopped in multiple places, but stopped in Hawaii on the way back. And I'm just sort of, I mean, I'm just gonna be honest. I was, you know, traumatized coming back. and like, what am I doing? Questioning everything, what's going on? Uh, So the plane lands in Honolulu and I got off. I, I picked up my backpack and got off the plane and quit. I quit academia. I was like, I'm gonna go to the North shore. I'm gonna teach kayaking. That's it, that's where I'm going. I don't need any of this academic stuff. I don't need to go back to my family, to the world, to whatever. I, I can't deal with that. That lasted a little while. And then I went back to school and finished my dissertation and got it together. But it was this sort of culmination of just all of these things that changed in my life. My experiences during the dissertation changed the way I saw the world and felt about myself and others. Mm. My relationships had been sort of, you know, shattered in some ways and reassembled. And, and I, I just couldn't come back. Mm -hmm. I couldn't imagine analyzing data and sitting in a classroom or being in the academy after living on the edge of the planet in the middle of the rainforest, you know, in in, in a very, very different way. So I would like to say that was a, you know, real dramatic and unexpected outcome, but I don't, I don't think it was. I, I think all, most people go through something like that, whether or not they step off a plane and give up their life uh, for a little while. This coming back from the dissertation research, it's, it's a life-changing event, and, and we haven't thought about it enough, or at least we haven't spoken about it enough as you know,
0: academics. Mm. And Chris and I were talking, uh, we, we both mentioned that we didn't talk to anybody about these things we were feeling, because I know personally, I felt like I must be the only one feeling this way. And then secondly, I immediately thought if I told my advisor or anybody, they would see it as a sign of weakness and that I'm just not cut out for this this lifestyle anyway. So I kept it to myself and like you and like Chris, I was paralyzed by my data. I could not bring myself to look at it. I was scared of what it might say and everything might fall apart. And so what a lot of people might think is a happy occasion, like you're coming home, you're gonna see friends, you're gonna see family, you get to sleep in your bed, and it's not like that. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to maybe why. Uh, And you went into that a little bit with some of the traumatic experiences, but, but why do we go through this?
2: Well, I I mean, and it's very different for everyone, but I think there's a couple distinctive patterns, but I think there's some commonalities. So let me hit what I think are the commonalities first. And that is, if we do this anthro thing, right, we're already training ourselves to recognize there are multiple successful ways to be human, right? Many successful ways to be human. There are many life experiences out there, and we're probably going to some place or to live some way for a little while that's really different from the way we were living or we're accustomed to living. So we're jarring ourselves out of our complacency and our sort of security into a new place to learn, to, to understand, to do some analysis and, and some research. I think that shifts your head. I think that changes the way in which you see the world. And most people, I know I, did not think about what happened if I left point A, my home, or right, what I'm used to, went to point B, something totally different, changed as a human being, and then came back to point A, without even thinking that things have changed, right? And so when you come back, I think a lot of things are difficult because your perspective, your world has changed, but what's around you may not have changed and you can't share it. You can't communicate, right? People didn't undergo your experience and many of your friends, especially like family members or other people not in the academy, have no idea what you're talking about.
1: And in little interest a lot of times.
2: Right, right, right. You know,
1: yeah. Um, so. You know, two things that reminds me of one, my first PhD student never made it back. He's still out there. So I know exactly what you're (laughs) talking about. He expressed all of these frustrations from the field and short of going to remote Costa Rica to bring him back, which I almost did, but he clearly did not want to be brought back. He had found more comfort there and he did not agree with the structure imposed by the academy and the scientific approach to writing. And so we had to, to let that go. But right. the, the other resonance there is of, we hear these very same stories from people in the military, yep. Who yep. go off and have traumatic experiences, whether or not it involves guns, just being in this other place. And the only other people they can relate to are the, the other people who right. went there because you come back, everything here is the same, but you're different. Right, right.
2: And if you're doing, as I said, this anthropology thing, you're really different. Because not only have you seen another way to be in the world, right? But you understand that this is a valid way of of being, right? You can't do it, but you've experienced it to a certain extent. You've sort of, your mind has been blown. It's changed, structured, altered in a different way. And then you're coming back. And one of the things I found that drove me crazy once, once I actually did make the commitment to actually come back and get back into the thing is I couldn't talk to people about my experience. People would always want to ask questions, but then they wouldn't. I couldn't verbalize it or I didn't know how to exactly articulate it. Or even when I was doing my data initially, you know, I was starting to analyze data. I'm like, I, this makes no sense. What the
1: hell am I doing? This is horrible. I blew it. This is a travesty. And this is some of the frustration I've heard from from the students as well. We're trying to fit what is inherently not neat and tidy and elegant into theoretical models. And so the ubiquitous complaint of having to simplify our research experiences so much to translate them for an audience undermines the inherent complexity of what we experienced. And we are misrepresenting everything that we went out there and saw
2: but this is why we got to really think about what a dissertation is and how we sort of envision that right so a dissertation that is is this distinctive contribution to a broader anthropological landscape by a student right by an individual by a scholar and so many of us are trained in certain ways that you know this is the right way to phrase it you know this is the theory part or it has to be this way or it has to be i'm trying to pull back and a lot of people disagree but it should be like what do you want to say how can i help you say that right within the broad confines of the Academy, Mm -hmm. but let's especially those of us who are lucky enough to have gone through this and have the stamp of approval, the ticket to the club, right, who've done this, um, especially those of us who are tenured, we need to create better spaces for not just the return, but the way in which dissertations are sort of created, disseminated, and experienced, right? Yeah, um,
0: I feel I, like there's a lot of shoehorning in yeah. uh, within like existing, like Chris said, theoretical models, and so much bad science comes out yeah. of that and then gets perpetuated down the line. Uh, yeah, no, I completely agree about that.
2: Yeah. And 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 part of that, I think, is, is and here I'm using the term trauma in a, in a broad sense, you know, the experiential trauma and the culture shock of coming back, we can contribute to that by sort of dr- doubling down on, okay, you're back, analyze your data, you know, write your papers, <laughs> publish, publish, ah, you know, all of that's important, but we got to be able to think with that and about that and facilitate it in a much more effective way than we do right now.
0: And I want to, I want to like hit on that a little bit more because- This whole coming back from the field experience, we don't talk about it. People don't acknowledge it, none of that. Why do you think it has been ignored when it kind of seems like a universal experience to some, like there are commonalities and there are differences, but universally people struggle when they come back. So why have we ignored this?
2: From my generation and before, it was the straight up macho colonialist crap. It was this whole idea that basically, and here I'm gonna use the term man up, go out there, Pioneer, cut some trails, do your thing, bring it back. Otherwise, you're not really an anthropologist. Mm-hmm. Huh? You didn't study real. You know, you didn't. You didn't suffer, so it can't be any good. That was awful. That was horrible. If I had been sent out with a team of colleagues, even two or three people, my, my dissertation would have been so much better. The data would yeah. have it would have really worked. Um, the whole idea of sending someone to the somewhere randomly different and making them do something by themselves. I'm sorry, that's just stupid. That's not good intellectual engagement. We need infrastructure, we need to connect them. We need to sort of you know, help facilitate this kind of, the dynamic that like before, during and after has to be thought of a whole project, right? Not these distinct entities. I mean, when I was at Berkeley, when I went to the field, you used to have to withdraw from the university. And This is still in a lot of places. You have to like withdraw to like go do your field work and then sign up again. That didn't send the right message.
0: Mm-mm. Because they kind of didn't expect you to come back. Yeah. <laughs> they were preparing for well,
2: it. So I think, you know, one thing that we've been trying to do, or I think is important, is to let, you know, talk with students beforehand. Now, they'll never believe you, right? I mean, you will tell them how complex it. But, you know, try to prep beforehand. And then when they come back, is, is what we're trying to do here, at least, is like provide a venue so all the students who are coming back in a particular year, that cohort, let them get together, facilitate, you know, give them some funds to get together and have, dinners or beers or coffee or whatever, create a peer mentoring network so that people who've undergone this experience can talk to one another. I think that's important. And the other thing is we as faculty need to be ready to understand that each student is going to deal with this differently. Mm -hmm. And so be ready, be flexible don't expect people to do what we did.
0: So for faculty members and mentors just across the board who may hopefully be listening to this episode and have mentees who have just come back from the field, are there any signs that they should look for? Because yeah. if you're just now hearing about this for the first time, that prep before going to the field did not happen. That, you know, that talk about what you might experience coming back didn't happen. So now, after the fact, what should, what should they be on the lookout for, what signs should they be looking for?
2: I mean, I think uh, critical, important, very, very clear things to watch out for is a kind of sort of clear depression, right? A sense of like a disconnect, a lack of interest in the project or the data. All of those things are actually normal. That's to be expected. That doesn't mean they're good. It just isn't something to freak out about. It's something to, to be mindful of. And to be compassionate about, right? I mean, I think this is one of these critical things that the academy can't just run on sort of productivity and efficiency, right? We've got to think of where does compassion come in? And so I would argue mentors should be looking for the students and asking, okay, what can I do to help? What can I do to sort of make this a space where you can sort of work your way back in and also be ready to be like, if the student's like, I can't do it. Like, okay, don't do it right now. Let's figure different ways to get you back into the community, the intellectual landscape in the academic community of the department or or the school or the center whatever, without trying to say produce now, right? And so I I think there are many ways. I think it's gonna be different for every individual. So those are some of the signs, right? The sort of depression, sort of a lack of interest. I'd also, you know, ask things about health. You know, so many people are gonna come back with different sort of shifts in their physiology or just even a a different diet or a different sleeping pattern and be there to talk with people and let them know that's okay. It's okay to feel really funky for months after coming back.
1: Yeah. We were just talking about that. I was gone this summer for one month, three weeks, and it took me literally three weeks to recover from the jet lag, from being back with different allergens, Right. From being ready to do things again. And, you know, something serendipitously happened because I'm still processing. You made the point that coming back in the field for from dissertation and later is, is different. But, but there right. are some parallels, right? Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that I know now is that as a tenured person, I can talk about everything I want to talk about because I, I have that liberty. Right. So I, one... I don't feel compelled to come back and write the paper right away. Right. I come back and I write something for a blog, for something very maybe superficial that doesn't dig down in the data, but that gets at my impression and that gets at some of the issues that I'm, I'm just hanging on to. Right. Yeah,
2: that is so right. And it, even a blog is not superficial. What if this sort of fiction, a narrative, a poem, uh, yeah. sort of a, a, a general musing, get that moment, that expression. We're so constrained when we make people write the academic, which is one of the most boring modes of writing on the planet. So why would we want to constrain that initial exuberance of possibilities of of reflection? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: All those words that you just said, exactly. Like whatever you feel like writing, write. Because then later you'll be jazzed to write the other stuff and you'll have already practiced. And the other thing is doing what we're doing right now, which is talking about our experiences Mm -hmm. as the mentors and normalizing it because I right. came back this year and talked about my experience and it, it, it digressed into addiction history and all the stuff that I've been through to normalize all that and I had a grad student turn around and say I've been holding on to this for a long time you gave me the courage to share this and now we're all back on track right it's amazing and how much relating can can help everybody
0: I think there's also something to be said about documenting the qualitative context mm-hmm in which you experienced the data collection in which the data was actually collected because that could have a huge impact on later analysis. And the further you get away from that, the less that context is still there and fresh in your mind. So just kind of putting that down and writing that all out, I think can be a very helpful process in putting what you have done in the greater context as well.
2: That's how you do good science, right? I mean, the science is better when it is not detached from the experience the emotion, just the, the morass of it all. We keep thinking that neutrality or cutting the science off from the rest is the way to do it. Look, we now know, right? Look at the last couple hundred years of people doing that. Bad. They did crappy science in many cases because they didn't really understand that biases, overloads, traumas, ideologies, that's who we are. And understanding how that influences being aware of it uh, helps us actually do, I think, I think a better science. But I want to come back, Christopher, when you said, I think, this idea of just the baggage we all bring and as mentors, recognizing that, and this never happened for many of us, or particularly in the older days, recognizing that, you know, the academy, the anthropology, the profession, uh, we've got to be more compassionate and real and human, which is funny for anthropology, about how we do this stuff, yeah. right? Either we admit that there's a bunch of humans here playing with knowledge about other humans and mm-hmm. deal with it. Or we're going to keep having the same problems that economists, psychologists, and, uh, you know, the chemists have.
1: Yeah. yeah. I've, I always found that to be one of the biggest ironies. And it didn't even occur to me till a few years ago, but now I try to point it out. We study families. We study emotional support that people get and give each other. We study what people say you should do, what they say they do, and what they really do. And yet we expect something different from mm-hmm. ourselves and our peers.
2: And I think I think something that's really important to point out is just because, like we just said this, the three of us agree on this, it doesn't mean it's easy, right? It doesn't mean we're going to do it right. But our discipline should, as a baseline, say, we're going to try. We, we have an interest in in in, let's open this up a little bit, right? And that gets to the broader thing. This very discussion about coming back from the field is also a discussion about diversity, inclusion, understanding. I mean, it's really about being just a little bit more human yeah. <laughs> than the academy prefers us to be yeah. uh, in, in these kind of contexts. And I mean, that's, that's actually what drew a lot of us to anthropology and that's you're true. right. We forget it right? Because they try to beat it out of us in the traditional academic
1: context. Well, I think it's that we made it through the eye of the needle to get a job. But that (laughs) eye really does like coming back and having like, I need to write now or my funding runs out is really the reality of the situation. And that's the crux of where people get disillusioned and pissed off that their humanness becomes an impediment to their success.
0: And it's denied. It's not just an impediment. It's denied by the academy.
2: And I think there's a, a particular problem characteristic to North America, to the United States, uh, particularly now. It, it, it's always been this way, but it, there's a particular moment going on right now. they coming back from any other places on the planet to the United States and having to work with amazing data, amazing colleagues, think about the people you've been working with, represent their voices, their lives, um, you know, sort of striving for dissemination of knowledge and justice and things like that in the current landscape of the United States, that's traumatizing, that's yes, difficult. Yeah. Because you feel like, what the hell am I doing, you know, writing about this, when look at what's going on around me? What we have to recognize is writing about this, writing about these detailed things about humanity, about being human, about primates, about bones, what have you, actually is part of the solution, right? Because what anthropology contributes in the big picture is critical. And we have to not get so overwhelmed by all of the morass around us in the US that we forget that we actually are and can be contributing. And I think that's another way that mentors can talk with the students, too, is is because you might just feel, I know when I came back, and this was a long time ago, I mean, there were no cell phones, there was no contact. I remember even just being in Hawaii and being back in that sort of Western landscape. I was just like, oh, no, well, I can't do this world anymore. This is not right. You know, I don't understand this. And that was just, you know, that was important. And it shaped me as a human being, and it's been very good to have gone through that. But if we don't tell students to expect that, it, we're sort of doing a disservice. It's true,
0: and we lose that perspective. Right it means the field loses that perspective. Right,
2: right. Um, it's 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 a humbling. Right. There's a certain amount of humility because we get knocked down. You know, you go out to the field like, "Yay, I'm gonna," you know, do all this stuff. Then you go to the field like, "Oh, every hypothesis I had is wrong, and I can't collect data this way, and I don't." <laughs> And so there's that trauma and then you come back and there's more, but all of that makes us better scientists. I think it makes us better anthropologists. It makes us better humanists because we're just forced to recognize our own limitations Mm. and our need for others. Right? Yeah. Mm. Uh,
0: And so I would kind of like to wrap this up a little bit, but you talked about, you know, we need to try within the academy or within our discipline to start addressing this and address this head on. And there are several different levels at which this can be addressed. And so I'd like to start with, what are some things that the person coming back from the field might want to do so that they can you know, try to lessen the, the trauma of coming back as much as possible and work through it if they can work through it?
2: Right, I think the most, the, the most important thing is try your best not to do it alone. Talk to your mentor, talk to your peers, talk to your friends, talk to your family, snuggle your dog, whatever it's gonna do, make sure that you're reaching out to other persons for assistance. There's nothing wrong with needing help. We're humans, right? We did not do this individually. No matter what many sort of contemporary philosophical orientations argue, we cannot do a thing individually. We need to be in community. We need that kind of help. And so I think the first thing is is reaching out for help. The second thing is what we said earlier, write something. Put your thoughts down. You have so much going on, find an outlet for that Or, or paint something or craft something, find an outlet. Don't keep it all inside. Find a way to get some of that sensation out of your body and out of your head.
0: And I would like to also put the call out there. If people are experiencing this and they do not feel comfortable talking to their mentors, email Chris, email myself. I'm not going to volunteer Augustine because I know how many emails he gets. Email me, come on. There are plenty of us out there. This is your (laughs) job,
2: right? Once you are granted the privilege of tenure in a discipline of anthropology, you get paid to do what I love, our job is to facilitate students who were committed and who want to do this and to help them in any way that we can of course you know i volunteer everyone who's tenured to be a good person
1: and help others for sure i I want to echo that and say students all the time apologize for taking my time but you know the most fulfilling experiences i've had lately are helping two graduate students who were in the thick of things and struggling. And I'm grad director right now, so it's my job. But I asked to be grad director because I enjoy working with grad students and I want to take what I have learned and (laughs) use it for good.
2: There's something else I want to point out. Yes, what can people do? So I I talked about what sort of mentors can do in that kind of sense. But here's what uh, peers, what other grad students can do. If you see one of your colleagues who's coming back, you know, and you recognize these signs, reach out to them, invite them to coffee, go grab a beer, go grab some tea, go for a run, play chess, whatever it is, go see a movie, do some kind of social thing, bring people in the fold, don't let them be. Or try not to let them be isolated, because when you get all in your head, that's when the things happen. What departments can do, or should be thinking about doing, is can we sort of develop programs or, or ways in which we, as a department, acknowledge this as a reality, and then you know, bring everyone who's coming back from the field together to talk about it, provide them with some funds to do stuff about it? Um, uh, are we very, very clear that there are resources for both psychological and physical health and wellness uh, do, is this part of our standard communal culture that we acknowledge this is an issue? So I think graduate students, faculty, and departments can, can really be doing things even just by saying at a public level within the department, this is recognized, this is what happens, I think creates a bit of a space. And, and so things like that are important, but we also we just really have to look out for one another and do our best to help.
1: Let me just, before we wrap up, let's drill down on this just a little bit more, because you you and I, Augustine, are both in positions in our departments where we can create a program. Do you have a vision for what a program like this looks like that I can implement today here at the University of Alabama?
2: Well, what we've tried to do in the last couple years, last year and this year, is when we have a, because we are a new graduate program, so last year was sort of our first cohort coming back from the field, from their dissertation research. And so what what we made available to them was some funding and said, look, we're not going to force anything, but here's some opportunity. If you guys want to get together, um, we'll pay for it. Just Do it socially, do it professionally, do it whatever, figure some things out. And we're offering that again this year. It's had mixed success, so we're trying to figure out what the best way to do that. Another thing is to bring them together as a department. We're going to do this year sort of formally and say, hey, we're bringing together the DGS and the chair. We're going to acknowledge this coming back. We're going to talk a little bit about it and then offer them this opportunity. Do you want to get together, what can we facilitate? So I think that's a start. Down the road, and we're trying to think of how to do this, what, what kind of things do you put into a handbook? What kinds of mm. structures and like how do, you, how do you enculturate faculty who did not have this into a kind of ideology, a communal ideology of this as the norm? Right. So those are the two, I think, the big challenges. The first one was I want to make sure it's like we let the students know this is real. This is important. And there's some options. Um, Mm. I think that's really important. I think the harder thing is getting a whole faculty together to say, oh, yes, let us actively create something. Mm
0: -hmm. Is this something that you see being a big enough deal to institute university wide? Because. Plenty of other departments have fieldwork uh, and a variety of different experiences. Is this something that universities should be looking at to provide support and different resources for? Yeah, yes, of course.
2: But I, you know, have worked for you know a couple decades in administration, and I want to clean my own house before I try to get the neighborhood to shape up. And yeah. yes, universities should do it. But it's mu- I think I have a much better shot at getting anthropology departments, and anthropology as a profession to buy into this. Other disciplines, and I know I'm already in discussion with you know, different areas, psychology, sociology, some other folks who are you know, hip to this and, and interested, but I really think think local first and act locally first, because as you move up the rank administratively in an institution, you do a lot of rolling boulders uphill. So I want to see my own department, yeah. I want to see the graduate students and faculty in the department first. Uh, and then I want to see anthropology, for example, the triple A, Mm. The ABA, the SAA, I, I want to see them take this seriously, right? And we've yeah. done a lot in the AAP, but certainly BA, to sort of really a- acknowledge diversity and inclusion. And this is part of that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we, you know, what about workshops at professional meetings uh, where yeah. we share stories? We're like, hey, this is this is what happens. How do we yeah. deal with this? What are some suggestions? Those, those kinds of things. I think we've made a lot of things part of our professional culture uh, in, in anthropology. And I think that's great, but we haven't like really tackled
0: this head on. No, that's a great suggestion. And maybe there will be proposal now for, <laughs> for the, uh, the next meetings. I think that'd be fantastic. Chris, any more questions from you?
1: Uh, a million, but I'm going to hold off because we're, we, we've already gone long. These, you know, no, what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to go talk to my chair. And we did it. We just did an orientation for the new students, but I'm going to go schedule one for the returning. Uh, those yeah. just came back from the field. That's a fantastic idea. That's great. Rock on.
0: Uh, Augustine, I can't thank you enough for coming on. I know how busy the first week of classes are, especially for the chair of the department. So thank you so much for giving us your time and your stories and your advice on this because it's critically important and no one talks about it.
2: Well, it's been my pleasure. Uh, this is a great podcast. And this kind of sort of out of the box, you know, innovative and interesting engagement is what anthropology has been about and should be doing. And now that we have the technology and media to do it.
1: For sure. So for those folks who want to ask you those questions or just find out more about you, and I know you have a new book as well. Oh, yes, how, right. How do they, What's that new book called?
2: The new book is called Why We Believe, Evolution and the Human Way of Being. It's out September 24th. And how do folks reach you? afuentes at nd.edu. And uh, I'm anthrofuentes on Twitter. Contact me, reach out. I'm glad to chat. Kara, are you on the social (laughs)
0: social media, but this also means we need to get him back on once the book is out so we can interview him about your research (laughs) rather than, you know, the sort of really interesting part of the field. Uh, But yes, I am on Twitter and I am at Kara Akaba,
1: And I'm at Chris underscore L Y and a million other things. Just Mm -hmm. Google us.
0: We are the sausage of science. Like us, share us, rate us. Uh, And thank you all so much for listening.
1: Thank you. Talk to you soon.